Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report podcast. I'm your host, Vago Maradian. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell. Since 1935, Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at bellflight.com. Budget hearings have started as lawmakers consider the Biden administration's $773 billion defense spending request for 2023. This as Russia has withdrawn forces from around Kiev to regroup for an assault on the western part of the country. In the process, revealing countless instances of gruesome atrocities by Russian troops against Ukrainian civilians, while continuing to target civilians to drive Ukrainians from the western part of the country, today striking a uh, Kramatorsk train station in Donbass with a precision missile, killing dozens of civilians trying to flee uh, the city. Uh, the COVID pandemic is worsening in China, and how leaders are handling the crisis has caused a firestorm of criticism in Shanghai as deaths mount, terror attacks, and a spat over whether non-kosher food can be allowed in hospitals is threatening the Bennett Lapid government, positioning Bibi Netanyahu to retake power in Israel. Joining us today to discuss all this and more are Dr. Patrick Cronin, the Asia-Pacific Security Chair at the Hudson Institute Think Tank, Michael Herson of American Defense International, one of Washington's top defense and aerospace lobbying firms, Chris Cervello, a retired United States Navy commander and public affairs officer who is our producer, as well as being the co-founder of the ProVision Advisors PR firm and former Pentagon Comptroller Dr. Dov Zakheim, who counts the Center for Strategic and International Studies among his many affiliations. Before we get started, our global coverage is sponsored by Leonardo DRS. Northrop Grumman sponsors our weekly cyber report and our cyber coverage overall. General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our coverage of strategy. And HII sponsored our coverage of the Navy League Sea Airspace Conference and Trade Show outside Washington, D.C. last week, uh, or this week, I should say. And Bell is sponsoring our coverage of the Army Aviation Association of America's annual meeting that was uh, also this week in Nashville, Tennessee. Check out our Cavus Ships podcast hosted by our contributing editor, Chris Cavus, and our producer, Chris Cervello, who clear the fog on naval and maritime issues each week and went daily uh, this week to cover uh, Navy League and also tune into the downlink with our contributing editor, Laura Winter, who takes a thoughtful uh, weekly look at all things space, including uh, some of the news that came out of the National Space Symposium also this week uh, in Colorado. Everybody, thanks so very much for joining us. Really appreciate it. Michael, uh, start us off with some admin stuff uh, because I want to get to Russia uh, and NATO-related uh, uh, matters uh, shortly. But let's start with where we are on the COVID relief bill that's stalled. And you have given us a Build Back Better uh, update every single week. And I'm not sure we'll, we're building really toward anything <laughs> at this point. And I, I, hate to, I hate to say that because uh, there, there's a lot of important stuff in it, but, but take us away on this sort of administrative stuff before we go to the budget and to Russia. Sure. Well, remember last week I was optimistic that a COVID relief package of about 10 billion was about to come together in the Senate. However, on Tuesday, earlier this week, it, it all fell apart. And that's despite the fact that COVID is raging throughout the Capitol. I mean, there's a lot of members of the House and Senate and the administration that now have COVID, including the Speaker of the House. Um, and, and the reason that the COVID deal was torpedoed was early over immigration policy. Just before the weekend, the uh, CDC announced the end of what's called Title 42, which is the authority used by the previous administration at the start of the pandemic to shut down uh, the asylum system. So hundreds of thousands of migrants uh, who would have been allowed to seek asylum under US law would be expelled instead. 
And even though Title 42 is being associated with the previous administration, it's really a provision that was included in the 1944 Public Health Service Act to permit federal health officials to ban people and goods from entering the country in the case of a pandemic. And now the current authority under the current plan that the CDC has issued would expire uh, around May, on May 23rd. And it's being reported that the migrant surge as a result of that will be dramatic. Uh, so as a result, Republicans want an amendment uh, to the, the COVID package uh, to keep Title 42 in place. Uh, Schumer balked at it. And you know one of the big problems with Schumer is that uh, that amendment had a really good chance of passing. Already six Democrats have come out in favor of it. Uh, Senators Hassan, Warnock, and Kelly, who are in tough reelections, have been criticizing the administration for rescinding the policy without a detailed plan to grapple with the increased uh, migration. And then many of the moderate Democratic senators, like Senator Tester, Manchin, and Sinema, uh, have joined uh, those other senators in, in protesting. So, you know, the, Schumer can complain that this is a, a you know, attack Republicans only once, but this is now a bipartisan problem uh, for him that's not going to go away. And the larger problem is even if they do put it in uh, the, the Senate bill, the House probably wouldn't pass it if it had this restriction in it, and the White House probably wouldn't sign it. So COVID relief is stalled now for a long time. Um, now, as far as, as BBB goes, you're right. They're not really building back anything. They're really, I think, building back again toward, toward failure because Schumer consent continues to want to make this a priority. The Senate and the House now are in a two-week recess. When they come back, he wants to make this a priority again. However, Manchin said earlier this week, when asked about Build Back Better, he said, there is no Build Back Better bill. I don't know what you're talking about. And, you know, Manchin's getting a lot of the attention again on this, but everybody forgets about Kirsten Cinema. And, you know, she recently told people that she feels that the Build Back Better agenda is dead. There is no path uh, to revival and no one has reached out to her to talk about it. So uh, I'm puzzled why they continue to push down this path. I think, uh, you know, especially since this bill will raise taxes and uh, it, every day we get closer to election, this becomes even more untenable. There are so many things to criticize here in terms of how the administration and the Democratic leadership have been actually trying to advance uh, some of these uh, priorities. Uh, and it's only going to come back to, unfortunately, bite them uh, in the end. Unfortunately or fortunately, depending on what side of the political aisle you're sitting. Um, let me uh, shift to uh, budget hearings. Obviously, uh, they've uh, started. Uh, where are lawmakers on the administration's request, uh, Michael? And what interesting stuff have we seen? It's it's interesting. The submarine launched, uh, the nuclear submarine launched cruise missile uh, program was canceled, right? I mean, I, I think the administration had telegraphed that in the nuclear posture review, and it wasn't until hearings this week that it sort of surfaced as, as sort of a news story because Mark, Mark Milley, uh, the chairman, was asked about it. But what's sort of the chi that you're getting from lawmakers uh, on how they're going to move on this because it does appear, as we've discussed on this program repeatedly, the administration offered up stuff that it knew that lawmakers was going to, you know, as cynical as that is, you know, even though the secretary of the Navy told me like this wasn't a cynical ploy uh, at all, uh, was 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 strategy uh, driven. And we'll get to that in a minute. But, but what are you what what more have you picked up on how lawmakers are looking at this budget and what are they finding in it, whether they like it or not? So I spent a lot of time with members of both parties uh, this week and, and both uh, on the oversight committees. And, you know, even though these hearings I think are very important, uh, n nobody's minds are being changed. And as I think if you've seen, too, this week, we've seen a lot of the services unfunded requirements list begin to be circulated on the Hill. And this just adds more 
fuels for the fire that you see we're not spending enough on defense. There's a lot of things the services need and they want, and there wasn't enough money for. So these uh, unfunded requirements lists are going to get a tremendous amount of attention as we get closer and closer to marking up the bill. Uh, so uh, I still anticipate, and I've talked to you know members of both sides, that there will be an amendment to add an enormous amount of money uh, to the defense bill. And it will pass again with, with strong bipartisan support. And, and you're still putting that in the about $40 billion range. I'm putting it in the $100 billion range. Increase numbers. Yes. So the top line number that folks should be thinking about should not be 773. It should be closer to 873, you think? Uh, Yes. And when you factor in everything else, we're talking well over 900 billion. So when when you put the Department of Energy and everything else, this is going to be the watershed budget that the department has been fantasizing about for decades. That is a number that was given to me by a very, very senior Republican on the committee. Will Democrats go along with it? Uh, I think that there will be enough that they will. Remember, the Democrats' majority is extremely slim, uh, and this is a must-pass piece of legislation, and I think that uh, many Democrats will, will vote for it. Uh, and I think they should, because an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure, build that capability, have it forward, you'll deter virtual presence is actual absence. So at the end of the day, um, from your mouth to God's ears, as they say, uh, Michael Herson, <laughs> uh, Dove, uh, to, let's, uh, let's, let's go to a man of the cloth on this. Um, talk to us a little bit about what Dove uh, you liked, you didn't like, uh, you commentated uh, beautifully on the budget last week, um, questioning a little bit of the uh, strategic underlying assumptions uh, as well in it. But, you know, what, what over the over the past week, what are some other things that you've noticed in this one way or another uh, in, in terms of nuance, both what what you like, what you don't like, where the debate is going and actually the importance of actually just spend more money because we've been underspending for a long time. Well, let me first uh, respond a little bit to what Michael said. Um, I think it, whether it goes to 40, 50, 80 or 90 billion or whatever, Uh, will uh, really depend to some extent on whether it appears inflation is coming down. Now, I don't think inflation is going to come all the way down to 2.2 or 2.6% that the administration seems to be playing with. But if it starts to come down, I think the Democrats may kick, you know, uh, be a little push back a little more, not to the point where they'll say accept the president's budget or even accept it at 40 billion above, but whether they go to 100 billion, which is a huge number, uh, would be a different story. Some of the things that uh, I've noticed this week, um, for a start, there's a ton of money going into hypersonics. And I think part of that, uh, what, that was generated a while back by the administration. But I think given the fact that the Russians have used hypersonic missiles, um, Congress could actually plus that, those programs up both offense and defense uh, quite a bit more toward that uh, target that Michael was just talking about. The fact that the uh, strategic cruise missile was dropped from the budget request, uh, A, is pretty amazing. It may be a gold watch because it's pretty clear that Congress is going to put it back in. And a lot of eyebrows were raised when the thing was dropped. And do and you think that that was just a bad idea, uh, as I do, to get rid of it? That, it, that it is something that should be in the budget as far as you're concerned and well, is strategically important for the United States? A, is strategically important. B, it was a bad idea. And C, the whole notion of gold watching uh, on, uh, with a budget 
uh, is just ridiculous because you're relying on the Congress to do your job. Congress is supposed to respond to budgets, not create them. Another uh, interesting uh, add-on that the administration has asked for is $100 million, not a lot of money, but very important to uh, somehow allow small businesses to get past what's called the valley of death. Um, this is, as uh, most of our listeners will know, uh, unfortunately, uh, is you, you develop something and then it goes into the system. And if it ever does come out the other side and reach the, uh, the, uh, the, the warfighter's hands, um, it, it's taken forever to get there. And we just can't deal with that anymore. Um, the way the Chinese are moving, uh, they're moving relative to us with the speed of light. Um, the question, of course, is uh, that Congress already gave $100 million towards pretty much the same thing in, in the uh, fiscal 22 agreement. Uh, would they give as much again? My guess is they probably would. Uh, Heidi Shu, the undersecretary, uh, who's very impressive, by the way, uh, makes a strong case for it. Uh, and uh, we really do need to tap every bit, bit of the commercial sector to get some of these uh, cutting edge technologies out the door and, and, on, the, uh, and on the battlefield. So, uh, again, not a lot of money, but uh, huge implications. Uh, I, um, um, and any, anything that allows innovative companies to bridge that gap? Uh, is critical. We've been talking about it for a very long time. Dov, I remember you talking about that as as somebody who was in, uh, you know, an important smaller business uh, uh, as well before you became comptroller. Um, let me, um, and, and, and there are a lot of debates about whether or not actually the government's own research and development projects are what is getting in the way of actual innovation, right? Whether it's well, government yeah, laboratories I mean, or, or the services have programs that go nowhere, and then you get a commercial firm that comes in with a breakthrough product, but you can't break the inertia of that which the departments have been spending money for a decade or a decade and a half, right? Well, I, that's right. That. Um, 20 years ago, or whatever it was, one of the things I tried to do was to uh, pretty much kill some of the government labs, and that caused a firestorm on the Hill, and I had to back off. Uh, some of the government labs are very, very good, but, uh, you know, it's a mixed bag. And the question then becomes, are they not only not producing what perhaps they used to produce uh, 40, 50 years ago uh, in the sense of getting new stuff out, but are they actually an impediment? Uh, I don't believe we've really taken a good hard scrub and look at these labs. What do they do well? What do they do badly? Uh, and uh, we probably need to. I think that that's uh, very legitimate. And it's, again, no disrespect to the enormously uh, good work that is being done in, in, in government labs uh, across the country. But again, I mean, right, the question is, at what point are we actually not moving the ball forward as quickly as we need to and are blind to better ideas because we are doing what we do, right? Each ecosystem has an inertia of its own. Uh, Patrick, let me uh, bring you in. Um, you know, what, you know, over the course of the week, uh, I know that you've been talking to not just folks here uh, from a budget and a capability standpoint, but also to allies and partners on how this uh, budget is being perceived. Um, any, any new insights over the course of the last week as you've, you've, you've sat, thought, and talked? Well, Vago, there have been many discussions. Um, on the budget issue, the one addition I would make would simply be that the Asian allies in particular look at the budget as a singular 
reality check on our priorities. And if the budget is declining in real terms, that speaks volumes about our strategic priorities. If, on the other hand, it goes up by tens of billions of dollars, as suggested uh, earlier today, um, that would be a tremendous uh, boost of reassurance to Japan, South Korea, Australia, um, and other uh, partners throughout the Indo-Pacific. So I think that's the most important takeaway on the budget. On on China, um, you know, they're going to have their hands full this week again with, with other news uh, that I can talk about, whether it's going to be the prospective seventh nuclear test by North Korea that many people expect could happen as early as next week because of all the special anniversaries in North Korea. But also uh, for China, particularly important is the, is the possibility of a congressional delegation to Taiwan um, this next week for the anniversary, the 43rd anniversary of the Taiwan Relations Act. Newt Gingrich went there as speaker in 1997. Nancy Pelosi was due to lead a delegation. She's now come down with COVID, maybe giving her the perfect excuse, uh, obviously not to go, um, and therefore avoid the crisis that the Chinese were setting up. Because the Chinese had stated that if she led that delegation, um, uh, they went so far as suggesting they might call uh, for a blockade of the air traffic and close down airspace around Taiwan. They might even shoot down planes that violated that airspace. Um, now, that was always suggested in the, the Global Times, which is really a disinformation rag these days. But nonetheless, um, the officials from, from Beijing also reiterated uh, how drastic it would be for her to lead that delegation from the standpoint of U.S.-China relations. Um, clearly, they want to uh, not see an elevation of U.S. support for Taiwan. So that that's an important indicator of what's happening in U.S.-China relations, in terms of uh, East Asian relations, but everybody's still focused on uh, Ukraine. And when you think about what happened this past week, NATO and Asia allies, Australia, New Zealand, Japan, Korea, really stepped up that relationship, both uh, showing solidarity over Ukraine issue and condemnation of Russia, uh, bolstering their own defense cooperation, uh, and then doing it through other means as well, uh, such as uh, the G7 statement, a blistering condemnation of Russia in that Japan representing Asia, in effect, um, AUKUS, the leaders coming out, uh, Australia, UK, US, with a, a new agreement to say we're going to step up hypersonic cooperation, and we may be open to doing that with other countries. That could be South Korea, for instance, the incoming Korean government, could be India, could be others. Um, we also have this week the U.S.-India 2 plus 2 talks, which have been postponed for a number of months. Uh, they're finally being held, and this is a critical 75th year of diplomatic recognition for U.S. and India relations. And <clears throat> we can't even add any more superlatives to this kind of relationship, despite the fact that India has been dragging their feet on uh, saying anything critical about Russia uh, and Ukraine, uh, we're about to bolster the U.S.-India relationship even further. So this strategic partnership um, is going to probably deepen in terms of defense technology, and that's a critical area of interest to, to India, which announced this week, almost using the opportunity about uh, their over-dependence on Russia as an, as an opportunity, we're going to deepen our made-in-India defense production because we're the second-largest army, the fourth-largest air force, and the seventh-largest navy in the world, we can't just import uh, from Russia. Uh, they didn't add the with Russia, but the, you know the import is an important indicator that uh, India is ready to go and work with the United States and other partners as they bolster their indigenous defense industry. 
So there are a lot of good things happening for U.S. allies and partners uh, and coming together internationally in terms of Europe and the transatlantic relationship and the trans-Pacific relationship. China's watching all of this, doesn't like it, but they may end up playing a much larger role in the Ukraine drama as we go from phase to phase of this of this current war and, and eventually peace, presumably. Um, and, and I want to uh, get to that in a minute uh, when when uh, because I want to get everybody's uh, view on, on on Russia. Let me bring uh, Chris in now uh, to ask him a little bit uh, to just finish up the budget part of the of the discussion. Chris, uh, you uh, were uh, at Navy League. Uh, it was lovely uh, to see you. You and Chris Cavus took your uh, weekly show uh, daily, uh, and we also had a great segment. Uh, on Monday with Brian McGrath, uh, the naval strategist, as well as Chris Cavus, to discuss the budget, to discuss some of the takeaways from the first day of the show and, and some of the messaging uh, we heard. And I commend folks to check out our interview uh, with uh, Elaine uh, Luria, uh, as well as our interview with Chris Cleary on, on, on cyber. You know, what, what were your budget and broader takeaways after three days of listening to service leaders, industry executives, and thought leaders like Brian McGrath? Well, it really... Um stood out to me was the conversation that we had with Brian and Chris uh, early in the week. Um, you, you know, like most navalists um, and, and you know, probably the most vocal was Elaine Luria, who tweeted out at the end of last week that the Navy budget sucks. Um, you, you know, I was sort of in the same camp, right? You throw your hands up. Uh, the Navy doesn't know what it's doing. Um, it's in real bad shape. Congress is going to have to save it. Um, and then when the um, when the unfunded list came out, I, I felt the same way. You know, I, I was hopeful that the things that were missing from the budget would be on the unfunded list. But actually, what you found is a very consistent um, theme between the budget and the uh, unfunded list. And then if you look at the other services, the the same is there. Brian McGrath, in his discussion with you and Chris Cavus, and then in an, uh, in a blog that he wrote for on the Commander Salamander blog, I think does a really good job of sort of putting the spotlight on the administration and saying, hey, it's not that this budget sucks. Actually, this budget is tied 100% to the administration's strategy. This is exactly, there should be no surprise. This is not a failure on the part of the services um, to budget correctly, um, or even on DOD, that this is a strategy-driven budget. And so if you have a problem with the budget, then your real problem is with the strategy. And for folks in the naval world, it's this um, conundrum of deterrence by denial versus deterrence by punishment. And the idea of denial, you know, and, and in our world, we sort of think of it as forward presence. Hey, you're the cop on the beat. You're out there. You're patrolling. You're preventing people from doing things that would result in, you know, either bad stuff for the United States or, God forbid, conflict versus um, deterrence by punishment, which is, hey, you, you're still out there. I don't want to say that you're not there, but you're out there a lot less. And therefore, um, you're buying things that would then punish your uh, competitor or adversary if they do something that is against uh, the United States or its allies. And so, I mean, this administration has, has prioritized um, deterrence by punishment. Um, and those are the things that you see in the budget. That's why you don't see um, the numbers, or that's why you see LCS is going away. That's why you see cruisers going away. That's why you see prioritizing longer range, higher speed missiles, things that will um, will you know reach the fleet in the late 20s and early 30s. And so, I mean, I, I would say that you know, at least in my lifetime, this is probably the closest budget to the strategy that we have seen. Um, and so, you know, it's not that this is a flawed budget. Um, it's that 
it matches a strategy that, you know, as navalists and probably as folks that are traditional DOD, uh, you know, supporters may not be happy with. So that, that was the big takeaway. And you hear that from the CNO who said, hey, we're going to go down to 280 ships because we want to be whole. We, you know, we can't afford to have more ships because we're prioritizing um, these capabilities that would be more about punishment than denial. You heard the same thing from the SECNAV during his lunchtime speech. Um, and as you look at the other service leaders and as you listen to um, Secretary Austin and as you listen to the chairman, they're echoing the same themes. So I'll, I'll take a breath there. But those were the big takeaways for me as I spent time at Navy League and up on the Hill this week. Um, let me uh, just uh, one thing I would add is I, I don't know if it's by denial, by punishment, because one of the things that I think that they're doing and underlying it is. If we right now, we lack the defensive capabilities and the offensive capabilities. So presence is important, but ultimately the Chinese also can count. They know that they are outrange us, uh, outstick us as, as Bob Work would say, uh, and that we can't defend. And I think that what they're trying to do is to show that, hey, look, my magazines are not just full. My magazines are also full of stuff that can reach out and touch you and um, and so the cruiser decision is, hey, look, they've become expensive. The Spruance class was a, uh, you know, was, was not the most robust hull. Then we put a gigantic superstructure on it. That's aluminum. Then we put hundreds of tons of radar. It, the ships keep getting heavier. They're having stability problems. And, 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 and we've been using them hard uh, because everybody wants cruisers uh, out there uh, forward. And, and so they're saying, hey, look, let, let's just hit the reset button. Let's retire all the stuff that's not useful. Let's get Flight 3 destroyers out there. Uh, let's, let's move to that next generation of surface combatant in the form of the frigate, but as well as a new destroyer, and kind of get heavier iron out there that can, you know, so that if we are going to be present, let's at least be present with stuff that can, uh, get, that can shoot back, uh, as opposed to, a, a, you know, a presence tool like LCS. Um, right, but the, the, problem, the problem with that, Vago, is, is that um, you are you are telling your adversary that you're not going to be ready um, for five to 10 years, right? The things that we're prioritizing in this budget are not going to be ready um, in the window in which um, Admiral Davidson and Admiral Aquilino have said are the, were the most vulnerable to um, a potential Chinese escalation, right? There's different interpretations as to what he meant as the chairman talked about um, when he right. went up on the Hill, but that that's so it, from my view as a, as a naval guy who thinks, and I don't want to turn this into a Navy podcast because I heard this from my other uh, service uh, brethren as well. Um, the concern is, is that you're sending a message to our competitors and to our potential adversaries that, that now's the time to go because we're not going to be ready now. Don't go in the 30s. Go now if you're going to go. Right. That, that's concerning. Um, it, it, it is, and, and I should uh, commend uh, to our audience uh, not to use that word too many times, uh, Dove Zakheim's piece, because Dove made that uh, observation as well a couple of weeks ago that, hey, we, we reach our nadir, or it was even last week, Dove, we reach our nadir around 2027, 20, um, which is the date that we think that the Chinese in the centenary commemoration of the PLA would move on, on, on China. And indeed, some months ago, uh, Patrick uh, uh, was uh, key in sort of illustrating that discussion that for the first time, that date came out from a semi-official source, well-connected academic uh, to uh, Xi. Like, I, like you said, the, the whole notion that somehow we can do the job with 280 shifts, uh, which is where we'll be in 2020, 
seven. You, we do have uh, new challenges uh, in the Black Sea, in the uh, Mediterranean because of the Black Sea uh, up north, uh, not to mention uh, what, what Patrick discussed. And so you, you look at all of that and you say, Will 280 ships do the job? I don't think most people would agree that it would. Um, let's, uh, Michael, uh, let's let's go to Russia. Walk us through some of the Russian actions uh, that lawmakers uh, took and and some of the positive NATO, uh, right? At least applauded NATO. Take it away. Yeah, sure. So you know, it's funny. Last week we were pessimistic on the Russia legislation because, as you know, it had passed the House overwhelmingly, but it was stalled in the Senate for a variety of reasons. I mean, uh, Senator Rand Paul was holding up the bill that would end permanent normal relations with China because he wanted some changes to the Magnitsky Act. And then once he once there was agreement on that, then Senator Cornyn was going to hold up legisl- the legislation because he wanted a vote on his bill that would approve a Lend-Lease program. Uh, so, uh, in, in fact, you know, the Senate agreed to do both. Um, so uh, and, and that meant, too, that those bills would have to go back to the House. We were worried that it would take a while for the House to get to those changes because now we have a two week recess. But um, the, the changes were agreed to in the Senate. They passed overwhelmingly uh, in the Senate uh, by 100 to nothing, uh, both bills. And at what the House did it was they actually stayed in session yesterday, scheduled a special vote and passed both these pieces of legislation overwhelmingly. The House voted 420 to three on the Russia trade bill. I mean, three outliers on the Republican side voted against it. And then on the uh, banning uh, Russian oil imports, uh, they passed 413 to nine. Uh, Again, few outliers on the Republican side, but two Democrats voted against that bill, uh, Ilan Omar and and, and Cory Bush. And, and, you know, the Lend-Lease legislation, I think is very important. It did pass uh, as a separate piece of legislation, the Senate will now go over to the House. Uh, But, you know, that will uh, establish a Lend-Lease program uh, for Ukraine. It was very similar to what we had in, in World War II. It's going to give the president uh, a greatly expanded authority that, that will allow him to swiftly you know, send weapons and other critical supplies uh, to Ukraine without you know, all, the, all the bureaucratic uh, red tape usually associated with it. And that passed uh, unanimously uh, through the Senate. So uh, you know, those, I think, were very positive. I think you know, the NATO resolution you, you mentioned, I think, is positive, but there, I have some concerns. I'll tell you what they are. I mean, this uh, you know, the House voted to pass a pro-NATO resolution Tuesday that applauded the alliance and urged further action to strengthen democracy. Who could be against that? Well, in fact, 63 House Republicans voted against it. Uh, and there was not just, you know, the usual outliers, but there were several members of the House Armed Services Committee and the Defense Appropriations Subcommittee that voted against this measure. And that to me is a little concerning. Uh, I, I think it's uh, it's 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 absurd. Um, I, I would I would also add I, I would like the administration to invoke the Defense Production Act and get moving on building uh, stocks. I know that there's a lot of behind the scenes effort. Uh, I know that there are a lot of prominent contractors don't want their names mentioned. They don't want to be grandstanding uh, or seen to be grandstanding uh, in the midst of this and, and seen to be profiting from it as well. Right. I mean, it's not these are not acts of charity, but there is a lot of activity going on. Uh, and it would be great to see the Defense Production Act invoked to be able to actually build more of the kind of weapons we need, both to replenish our stocks, but as well get them into Ukrainian hands. I mean, the fascinating thing about the administration has been they're not going to send tanks. They're not going to send better air defense weapons. They're not going to send fighters. And you, you sort of see movement on each of these. You see uh, authorization of tanks to be sent. We're seeing let's send uh, surface uh, you know, air defense uh, weapons. And indeed, Jonathan Feiner was on NPR and he left the, the, the door open uh, for fighters uh, to go there as long as they don't get to 
the get you know get to Ukraine from the United States that would be provocative and I want to get Chris's ideas on this because uh, he has he has some a, a very thoughtful take on it uh, from your standpoint Dove uh, certainly uh, an interesting week right Victor Orban uh, Orban has said, hey, you know, let me negotiate between uh, Putin and Zelensky. I've got a relationship there. Uh, obviously, he's been reelected. So Vladimir Putin was not as the liability, obviously, the Hungarian opposition thought. Uh, sadly, I, I think it's clear that in four years, Hungarian democracy may be so badly damaged that it never recovers, um, which was uh, seen as the stakes uh, involved in this, right? Uh, uh, Duda uh, in Poland has gotten a little bit of a, of, of a reset. Uh, in terms of how compassionately Poles have dealt with this crisis. But we also had uh, a very important uh, NATO summit. I mean, really, Tony Blinken is going to be able to apply for Belgian citizenship soon um, and more more sanctions on the Russians. Where, where are you? What do you see that's interesting uh, in this dynamic over the past week? And how do we need to be thinking about it going forward? Because the lull in the fighting is Russia has called up reserves, drafting conscripts, moving equipment, more equipment, and is is going to hit the western part of that country like an anvil well a couple of things first uh, the lend lease uh, legislation goes beyond ukraine and it involves poland and uh any frankly uh any other eastern european nato member that isn't feels that it's in trouble so that's a huge huge development and uh hopefully the house will pass it one of the things the administration is simply not doing quickly enough is allowing its uh, its NATO partners to ship things like the S-300 air defense system over to Ukraine and then backfill them. Uh, there's a real reluctance to do the backfilling part. Um, and by the way, they would backfill them, say, the S-300s with the Patriots, which would, of course, upgrade the air defense systems of, of the countries shipping out the S-300s. So you got to wonder what's going on there. Um, the The beyond that, it just appears that Ukraine, because the Russians have backed off, is there, I'm starting to hear noises from East Europeans that maybe we should let Ukraine try to win uh, as opposed to negotiate. There's a real problem with negotiating with a war criminal, but, you know, we negotiated with Stalin, who was, wasn't a war criminal, he was just a criminal. Uh, and so that becomes an interesting issue. How far do you want to allow the Ukrainians to think that they can win this war. Now, one other factor is the Russians are running out of the people that they had. So they're getting these new conscripts, they're getting the Wagner group, they're getting Syrians, all kinds of mishmash. But the thing about it is, where's the command and control here? They couldn't even do the command and control with the people they had. Now they're going to bring in all these fresh faces. Um, it's not clear to me that they're going to do all that terribly well. I think that we're we're looking at it through our lens, which is what military success is. He is trying to depopulate large parts of the country and turn it into a rump state and cause chaos. He's already driven five million refugees. He's taken Ukrainians hostage. He is specifically targeting civilians, as he did, whether he was in Chechnya, whether it was in 2014, whether it was in Syria. It's all the same tactics. So I, I, I'm, I'm just well, saying yeah, that we have a tendency of, of applying military competence no, 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 to it, whereas no, no. for him, it's that's not really relevant. He just well, wants but, to depopulate that area and well, repopulate it with Russians. There's a couple of things, though. First, uh, some Ukrainians are already coming back, and they're coming back actually to fight. That's number one. Number two is he has alienated a lot of people in the eastern provinces that's because they, they're, 
their homes are being shattered as well. And and so, yeah, I mean, he thinks he can do what he did in Chechnya in particular and Grozny and all that. But actually, all he seems to be doing is uniting the Ukrainians. And if they weren't really a nation before, as he alleged, they sure as heck are now. Uh, indeed. And, and we should we should point out, right, Zelensky is ethnically Russian. And so are folks in Mariupol and in Donbass and Luhansk who actually like don't like being under the Russian yoke, for, for lack of a, uh, a better phrase. Although there is some criticism of uh, the government in Kiev not being inclusive enough toward the 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 eastern part of the country uh and 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 so there is uh, obviously some debate and discussion including the the group we were with last night uh dove um at, a, at an at an event um uh, patrick let me bring you into this xi jinping uh, is trying uh, or is, is sort of suggested also a little bit orban like hey let me be the negotiator in this and and resolve it the chinese are trying to play this uh, very carefully but at the same time the the covid the, the, the criticism of Chinese, you know, against the government for its brutality and separating families, uh, you know, dead bodies piling up at nursing homes and the way the state is treating those bodies uh, has become quite controversial. Give us sort of this sense at a year where, you know, Xi Jinping wants to sail to coronation, how these sort of different s- streams are coming together, um, you know, because it's, it's sort of a nightmare scenario for him right now, which I welcome any nightmare scenario facing. <laughs> but it, it is a, a tough set of issues, each one of which will be meaningful in how they're resolved. Well, China's been watching closely the breadth and depth of the sanctions against Russia. And they're trembling about the implications for both what could happen to China if they're sanctioned in the future, but also what this means for decoupling and crippling the economy from their perspective. So economics are still at the forefront of, of what they're thinking here. Um, they do have economic ties into Ukraine. And as you think about the potential for reconstruction, when you think about debt relief that, that Ukraine needs from China, China can have a tremendous leverage in the post-military or the when we get beyond and, and toward a political settlement of any type. Um, there's going to be a, a role for China to play. And China wants to play that role because they also want to temper excitement and enthusiasm for the kinds of sanctions that they don't want to see against themselves. In fact, one of the reasons the EU meeting with the Chinese leaders this past week was so contentious was because the EU flipped the script from two years ago. Two years ago, China was warning the European Union, hey, you know, don't impose sanctions on us for Xinjiang and other things, or you're going to risk a, a better relationship with us and, and, and trade. Uh, and now the EU is coming back and saying, Hey, if you keep supporting Russia and you don't start condemning them, China, you're going to risk relations with the EU and you're not going to get comprehensive investment agreement. You're not going to get other types of trade with us. Um, In fact, they're going to be fleeing China. So China's got this economic interest first and foremost in mind, even if there are a lot of other military and security uh, implications of this, whether applying to Taiwan or or to the U.S. ability to sustain and to uh, be present in, in in the Pacific in the longer term. And do you think that any of the the COVID uh, tensions are going to manifest itself uh, in a, a broader, more negative way? Because the ire, I, I truly am stunned at the ire and the willingness of Chinese to actually talk in volume to Western reporters about, you know, 
you know, people saying like, you know, I'm a good communist, but this is unconscionable, dot, 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 right? When you lock down a city of 25 million people, as they've done in Shanghai, and when your zero tolerance for COVID is creating political uh, fallout, uh, where basically you're reaching the psychological limit of many Chinese people for this zero COVID policy that is now forcing major lockdowns in major cities, you know, a city like Shanghai, which is responsible for nearly 5% of the economy of the country. Uh, and, um, you know, this could have significant political fallout later this year for the 20th Party Congress, but, but you can be sure that we're not going to hear a lot about it directly from Beijing. We're going to hear about it indirectly, like the images that are showing up on Weibo uh, of uh, uh, Chinese health authorities beating to death dogs in the street, pet dogs in the street, because who knows, maybe they're sick and they could be spreading COVID. Um, and those are just horrendous, uh, you know, horrendous PR for, for Xi Jinping. And he may pay, well pay a big price for this. But, you know, from my perspective, you know, COVID has created um, problems for every country around the world. Um, and China's problem in this case has been they got on their soapbox and started to tell the world that they were best about how to deal with this. And now they find out that, no, they, too, uh, have uh, shortcomings uh, that are uh, being expressed by their own people. Uh, you just can't hear them much because there's not a free press. Now, I should also point out, right, I mean, it's not only those horrific images, but as well, uh, the notion of children separated from their parents uh, and, and, you know, kind of being reunited uh, with all manner of traumas, right? One can imagine exactly how roughly some of these poor kids um have been have been dealt with um and and the senselessness of it uh at, at the end of the day also um chris uh let me bring you in on the uh russia uh issue um and a conversation that you and i actually had uh, this morning in terms of you know first first your sense on where we are right i mean a couple of weeks ago you were worried that march madness was going to knock this off of the front pages uh and then once it got off the front pages even the people who were leading the charge may breathe a sigh of relief. And uh, we go in a little bit on autopilot when Katanji Brown Jackson, um, you know, she, she made history. All the top headlines were focused on America's uh, first black female Supreme Court justice and certainly a very qualified jurist to take that role. Um, and then there was the Kramatorsk uh, attack. Uh, and then it brought Ukraine back to the fore. And obviously we're in a regrouping moment. What, what's your sense on the messaging? where the administration is on this, um, you know, we're, we're all both supportive and critical as we need to be uh, as the administration tries to work their way through this uh, without, as they say, cause World War III, although I think we're all in agreement that they could be pushing uh, significantly harder than they are. What's your sense on some of these storylines, where we are now, where we're going, because it is obvious that wherever we're going is going to be a much more protracted conflict? So when you and I talked a couple of weeks ago, in addition to what we talked about this morning, my, I told you my two big fears were that um, one, that this would fall off, fall out of the headlines, it would fall out of social media, um, and two, that the U.S. would pull all the levers that it could pull and that it would essentially either be left with the decision to let this thing sort of simmer and see if it um, if the levers and the actions were strong enough to bring Putin to his knees or they, they would have to escalate um, to a higher level. 
um, either in response to what the Russians did or as a way of, of dealing with uh, the, the atrocities. On the, on the first, uh, the number of mentions of Ukraine, the times uh, or the length in which um, the stories and video clips have uh, run on social media are, are way down over the last two weeks. They've been replaced by March Madness. They've been replaced by uh, opening day for uh, Major League Baseball. They've been replaced by um, the Masters in which uh, Tiger Woods returns to professional golf and is in contention at least after one day. Um, and so I don't want to be trivial or flippant, but I mean, this is the news cycle in which any administration lives and operates in. Um, and so they have to, to deal with that. Does that change their policy? Does it, does it change the way they communicate? I, I don't know, but I, I'm concerned that as Americans start to focus on other things, as they start to um, you know, look towards spring and summer, as they worry about inflation and gas, the mandate that the administration has um, you know, is somehow diminished. On, on the second point, I also worry that we've sort of reached the limit that, of, of how far we can go in leading this effort, right? I mean, the United States, when you have an action that the United States leads vis-a-vis -vis Russia, I think it's different than if a European country was leading it. Um, and so I, I wonder, and we talked about this morning, are we at a point in this where the United States takes a step back I'm not saying that it changes our policy, that it changes our commitment, but do we let our European powers take um, the lead? Do we do some of the things that Dove talked about in his comments so that it isn't viewed through the lens of US-Russia, um, that it's more viewed through the lens of Europe and um, you know things that the Ukrainians actually need? So that, that's sort of where I am you know, several weeks into this conflict. Um, it was, uh, it, what is uh, interesting is that the administration did play a key role in sort of working behind the scenes and allowing the Europeans, you know what I mean? They had views on Swift or on Nord Stream 2 or what have you, but it was sort of like, hey, let's have the Europeans take the lead in some of this stuff and call for kicking Russia out of Swift or largely kicking Russia out of Swift and some of the other banking sanctions and gave support to it. So it didn't seem like the United States was the one who was, you know, totally the guy stage managing this. Uh, but one of the, uh, the points uh, that came up uh, fairly early on was, and why Washington was so frustrated with Poland, their hope was that the airplanes get kind of shipped over without dragging the United States into the middle of it and, and doing it. So when it goes, and just one follow-up uh, before we bring this home, governments should do this from Europe without bringing it. So your view is shipping MiGs with the United States as an intermediary is much more provocative than if Poland just does it or Romania just does it, or it goes directly from, you know, a third country somewhere. That, that's my view. I, I think that it changes the way this is viewed um, in Moscow when they go from a European country, even if it's a NATO country, directly to Ukraine versus going to Germany or going to the United States. And um, because it, it, it changes the dynamic. Um, I, I think that if we, again, if we were to take a step back and the Euro Europeans took a lead, you may be able to get to a point where you find different levers, you find different ways to support the Ukrainians that wouldn't force the Russians to the next level of conflict, um, which a, a lot of folks fear is, you know, in the in Cambio or, or nuclear. Um, I, I think as long as the U.S. is leading, the chances of escalation are, are high. Um, very uh, quickly uh, around the horn, and then Dove will bring us uh, home in the Michigan's politics. 
uh, that, or maybe I should just say the politics of Israel. <laughs> you don't even need to add Mishigaz because it always is crazy. Um, let me uh, quickly go around the horn by everybody. Does the alliance hang firm uh, on this? And is are you guys still worried about a danger of some kind of WMD use on Putin's part, especially if this is not resolved more quickly so that, he, you know what I mean? He may reestablish conventional deterrence in how he does the next phase of this, but let's be honest, he has suffered massive enough casualties where Dmitry Peskov and some others are beginning to acknowledge the massive casualties. It's not clear they're acknowledging the massive casualties to a Russian audience, but externally they're beginning to message it because the bottom line is we have so much reconnaissance focus there. We know who, who's being killed, which units are being decimated, how many people are being killed, and we have access to that information, and they know it. Do you guys see everybody hanging tough, and are we about to get more dangerous, or are we getting into some kind of end game where you know, something happens in the East that allows Putin to declare victory, and we negotiate very quickly around the horn? Michael, Dove, Patrick, Chris, and then Dove very quickly. But we, we just do have a couple of seconds, so everybody gets about 30 seconds on this. Go ahead. Sure. Look, I, I think we have to stop talking about the things we're not going to do, and we have to create some sense of ambiguity to make Putin think twice before he does something. Uh, you know, we talked about this a little bit last week. I think the, the way we're behaving now since all the wrong signals to China when it comes to Taiwan, because we're basically saying, look, if you have nuclear weapons and you're not um, and, we're, and it's not a NATO member state, we're not going to come to their aid. So I think the Chinese know that they were to go after Taiwan right now. There's nothing we would do about it. Uh, and I think, you know, we have to cause Putin to second guess. And I think we have to stop saying, you know, showing weakness and fear. I mean, I, I don't think that he's going to take a, 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 a attack NATO. I mean, I think, you know, right now it's be 30 countries against one. And he's not going to use nuclear weapons against NATO, weapons of mass destruction against NATO, because we know that we, we have those and can use them against him. Now, whether he's going to use them in Ukraine or not, I think we have to create some sense of ambiguity and make him think twice about what our response would be if he were to choose to do so. I'm with Michael on all of that. Uh, I would simply uh, also add that the one worry is chemical because he's used that before. We are shipping loads and loads of protective equipment to the Ukrainians. And uh, again, we need to make clear to him that uh, this is not the Syrian red line of uh, 2015 or whatever. Uh, we will respond. Um, and he needs to understand that. And one other uh, implication of all this, though, is if I was sitting in Tehran, I would say, hey, look, if Ukraine had nuclear weapons, none of this would have happened. Uh, I want to have nuclear weapons. Whether or not I make a deal, I want to have nuclear weapons. Uh, Patrick? Well, we have to beat Putin in Ukraine. We have to strengthen European security and with the help of Asian allies and partners. And I think right now they're all unified. So we have to keep moving together uh, against this. The, the horrors, the dangers are, are great because Putin is capable of horrific uh, brutality. Um, so we have to recognize that and be prepared for it. Um, I, Fiona Hill made a great point this week about we don't know how this war ends. Uh, we're going to have to take it in phases. And so as we now move to the phase that uh, Russia's fighting possibly again uh, uh, in Ukraine's east in, in southern borders, um, you know, we're going to have to just help Ukraine as we can. And as uh, Chris suggested earlier, a lot of the arms that Ukraine's looking for that we've been reluctant to give or to backfill, as Doug pointed out, um, are better given directly from Europe. And I think uh, if you look at the latest White House fact sheet about what we have provided Ukraine, it's a lengthy list. 
And at the very top, there were two vague bullets saying, um, and we'll help provide uh, these things with allies and partners, meaning we will support Europe. But as Doug pointed out, are we willing to backfill our European allies with what they're going to have to give up uh, in order to, to uh, arm Ukraine to help beat Putin in Ukraine? Uh, I think that what it illustrates is we have a shortage of this capability in our own forces. And so as a consequence, we're being a little bit slower to deploy it, I think, than we should be. Absolutely agree with you. We've got to backfill all of this capability. And it also highlights we are not as good at air and missile defenses as we need to be. We've optimized for the lowest end and, and not for volume. Everything is sort of boutique for shooting down handfuls of things come at us as opposed to the volumes of fires that we're uh, going to get. And I think that that uh, serves uh, as an important wake up call. Uh, Chris, really quickly, and then I, I, we've got to go to Doug before we wrap up. Go ahead. Yeah, thanks, Vago. I, I think it's very easy to criticize the the Biden team, um, you know, for what they're doing or for what they're not doing. That said, um, I, I I think they they deserve um, a lot of credit. Um, that this is a tough assignment that that they have. Um, that they are, and so I, I think you have to, you know in addition to criticizing, I think you have to take a step back and recognize all the things that they are doing right. Um, and I think that, you know, moving forward, they need to keep doing those things that they're doing right and maybe continue to find ways to be creative uh, and, and use the um, all of the talents and all the expertise and all the capability uh, of our allies. Um, you know, we are going to reach the end point uh, of where we can lead. Um, and so the degree to which they can do that and not make this a U.S.-Russia conflict, I, I think that will uh, up our chances for success. Uh, I, I, I think uh, well, well said. And uh, Dove, uh, bring us home uh, because this is a very consequential story and I wish I, uh, we had a little bit more time to discuss it, but let's take as much time as we need to. Um, terror attacks have been increasing uh, in Israel, unfortunately claiming lives uh, in the process, but yet the thing that appears to be destabilizing and you wrote about it uh, in uh, your uh, commentary today uh, that uh, has uh, run uh, on the hill in your weekly comment, breadcrumbs that could bring down a government. And indeed, it's down to whether uh, non-kosher food can go into uh, Israeli uh, hospitals. Looks like Bibi Netanyahu is actually poised to come back to power uh, because he needs just one vote in the Knesset, if my math is correct on this. Uh, and, and what does that mean if that happens? Because there is, for the first time in decades, an extraordinarily palpable frustration with Israel on Capitol Hill in a bipartisan way that is not just focused on Israel's unwillingness to be helpful in Ukraine, but actually goes beyond that, that gets to some of the fundaments of whether or not Israel deserves to get the billions of dollars in annual aid from the United States that it does, because I think we can conclude at this point that may no, just no longer be necessary. Israel has a quantitative military edge over its ally, over its adversaries, and indeed has struck alliances with most of them. And Josh Rogan wrote about that in the in the post, as uh, as you observed in our earlier co planning conversation. Take it away on what all of this means, because this could be an exceptionally consequential. What's driving it, and why it actually could be tectonically consequential. Well, what happened was the. Uh parliamentary whip, uh, senior person uh, in uh, Bennett's, uh, the Prime Minister Bennett's government, announced that because uh, the health minister uh, was permitting non-kosher for Passover food to be brought into hospitals on Passover, that was the limit. She was out 
Uh, and uh, as you said, uh, the the government's majority uh, pretty much disappeared. In fact, there's been at least one other member of uh, the majority coalition uh, that's backing out. Now, why is all this important? Well, uh, in the first place, the Bennett government passed a couple of budgets. Uh, there's some stability there. It's a government that's included an Arab party, an Islamist Arab party, for the first time in Israel's history. Uh, it has a, a, a minister who's also an Arab who uh, is in charge of cooperation with uh, all the other Arab countries that are at peace with Israel. And this government could go down thanks to Bibi Netanyahu's constant efforts to do so. If this man takes over again, what happens? Um, obviously, the relations with the, with the Democratic Party head south real fast. Uh, second of all, uh, he's been very, very vocal about the Iran deal and probably will make it more difficult uh, to uh, block a deal because he's just such a negative kind of person. Uh, the Israeli relationship with the United States is going to be in deep, deep trouble. Uh, he was the one that essentially plumped for the Republican Party and for Donald Trump, alienating Democrats. This will he will further alienate them. Uh, and ultimately, of course, uh, yes, Israel is a powerful country now, uh, but its security still in many ways does depend on the relationship with the United States. So in many ways, if he becomes prime minister, he's also a security risk for his country. And do you think that uh, future, the continuation of aid to Israel is in potential jeopardy? ultimately, or, or not, right? I mean, this is a topic that has come up over decades yeah. and decades and decades and decades. And, well, yeah. you know, people express criticism and it sort of goes away, but sometimes it's lasting. And it appears, have we crossed an inflection point on this or are we getting there? Uh, we haven't crossed it uh, because the Democratic Party still supports it, but there are more and more Democrats who are questioning the relationship uh, especially, of course, among the progressives. And remember, the progressive caucus in the House is 100 people. Um, but if Netanyahu comes in, he provides the excuse for cutting back. And that's why I say he's a security risk for Israel. Um, he, will, he will not only alienate a lot, a lot of the Democrats and put pro-Israel Democrats in a very difficult situation, but there are not there are not, no shortage of Republicans who question this as well and who've gone along. But Netanyahu could give them the excuse. Everybody, thanks so very much for joining us. Really is terrific having you on each week. Uh, thanks very much for taking the time uh, with us. Hope everybody has a great weekend, a great week and look forward to having you back on again next week. Thanks so much. And now a word from our sponsor, retired United States Army Major General Jeff Schlosser, who is the executive vice president for strategic pursuits at Bell. We've been building creative and innovative aircraft, next generation types of capabilities for almost nine decades. Bell is the company that can deliver that. Thanks very much, sir. And thanks to all of you for listening. Please follow our daily podcasts and visit the Defense and Aerospace Report website to subscribe to our weekly newsletter. Follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook at Defense and Aerospace Report and check us out on LinkedIn and stay tuned for our weekly cyber report sponsored by Northrop Grumman. Thanks again to Bell for their generous sponsorship and we'll see you again tomorrow.